Hello, and welcome to Turning Point, a new podcast series on leadership development and growth from Vistage, the executive coaching organization dedicated to improving the effectiveness and enhancing the lives of our members. I'm Matthew Griffiths, Vistage Chair, Business Coach and Mentor, having been a CEO for companies both in the UK and the US over the past 30 years. This week's episode is on health and well-being. From our own research, Vistage CEO Confidence Index reports have found that almost half, 44% of bosses in the UK, admit that they have felt forced to compromise their health and well-being as a result of pressure at work. Being a boss can mean having to put your body on the line from time to time, but there's a fine line between making sacrifices and becoming a martyr to the cause. However, being resilient and healthy at work is a vitally important issue for CEOs, and new research suggests it's incumbent upon leaders to set the example, particularly as the use of mobile technology seems to be increasing stress levels rather than reducing them. With me today to discuss the issue most, if not all business leaders struggle to juggle from time to time, is Nikki Young, Group Managing Director at Mullen Low Salt, a strategic communications and PR specialist firm in London. Nikki, welcome. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. So can you just explain a little bit more, first of all, about your role as MD and what the company does? Sure. Group Managing Director of Mullen Low, we have operations in London and Singapore, and we form part of a international integrated marketing services company called the Mullen Low Group. And our business unit within that specialises, as you said, within the public relations sector with a specific focus on purpose and sustainability communications. We're a B corporation, which means that we believe in marrying profit with purpose. So we're very proud that we're able to deliver positive change through our craft. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So we're talking about health and well-being today. I had a quick look on the web and found that the World Health Organization defines health as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And well-being refers to a positive rather than neutral state, framing health as a positive aspiration. Have you got a view on that? I mean, it's a very worthy uh, set of words, but what does it actually mean in real life? What does that mean to you? I think that's such an interesting statement because well, we are actually currently working with a private insurance company around their mental health offering. And I was on the lookout for a phrase that described what it means to be not healthy. And it was a build on what you've just described, really, which was describing the fact that you have these physical elements as well as mental elements. And if you can't tick all the elements, then you're not well. To me personally, that statement is more interesting because I believe often people assume that to be unwell or to not have good health and well-being means to be physically ill. And increasingly, the cultural zeitgeist is that mental well-being has joined the body, really, which is ironic considering the body is made up of the mind and obviously the physical aspects. So for me, I find that spot on really because it is about trying to be complete in mind body and soul 
What is also fascinating, I have to say, is that definition came out in 1948. Oh, wow. So it's been a long time since we as corporate leaders Mm. have particularly embraced this and Mm. taken it on. Let's go to 2017 from Mm -hmm. your point of view. And I use that date because I know a little bit about your story. Can you just set the scene for us as to how this element of health and well-being impacted your life and what was going on? At the time? Certainly. So it was International Women's Day, which is quite ironic because that day is a day of strength and it signifies women coming to their full. And I woke up one day having been on a journey of extreme work at work in the sense that we were preparing the business for sale. We were also going through unprecedented levels of growth and I was working for people's jobs in addition to my own. And having completed a very big event at Unilever with the chief executive at the time, Paul Pullman, I had a sense of satisfaction the day before that things were on track. And that morning when I woke up, I literally felt as though I'd been hit by a bus and that my body was physically incapable of getting out of bed. And I know now that I'd lost my ikigai, as the Japanese refer to it, which is my sense of why do I get up in the morning? I think spiritually, mentally, I felt I'd lost myself and my body physically was responding. And that was the beginning of two months of self-recovery, really. And it was a a scary, scary part of my life. Absolutely. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that, certainly to the scary element of this. I just want to touch back, though, prior to this, you had no indication, as you recognise, of getting to that point. You were busy, like all of us, we all think we can cope with stress in inverted commas, but you didn't at any point register... Or this is getting dangerous? Yeah, well, I would diagnose myself as a high achiever in the sense that if I get busy, I just roll up my sleeves and carry on going. And what I did start to realise was a few things. First, I had nausea in the mornings. I put this down to a indigestion. I went to the doctor and they indeed medicated me for indigestion. So I started to take medication to make me feel less nauseous in the mornings. I started to get up really early, a good three hours before my working day began. And I would also actually get out of bed and do work because at the time, as I said, I was holding so many people's jobs that I felt I could squeeze in three hours before my working day began. And then I wasn't eating as much and I was withdrawing into myself. But With reflection, I can see those elements now, but at the time, I wasn't aware of them really. And I think that is what happens when you have clinical depression, which is what I was diagnosed with, is that your brain stops to function optimally. It doesn't produce the chemicals, so parts of the brain aren't communicating to one another. And I essentially just became somebody who thought, in reality, I was fine. But I wasn't. And with hindsight, if I speak to people who saw me at the time, they would have told me that is what it is that that you're experiencing. But I think people with mental health, they worry about finding the words to approach people. 
to ask them what they think or it's, they don't want to hear what other people well, have Well, if to you say. think about it, if somebody breaks their leg, they have a very visual cue that they've broken their leg. You have a cast and you've got crutches. When you're going through mental illness and you have a breakdown, there is no physical sign that you are broken. And because of the, I guess, the stereotyping around mental illness, that it always has to be about schizophrenia, it always has to be about suicide, people just feel nervous about asking questions because they don't know how to verbalize in a safe way are you okay? And um, recently there was a campaign that one of the mental health charities launched, which is ask three times, are you okay? Because actually, even if you as a leader or as a colleague approach somebody that you felt wasn't okay, and you found the courage to ask them if they were, the statistics show that usually only in the third response will you actually get the truth coming forward. So you should ask, are you okay three times, which is a simple tip. And people feel that to ask the question, are you okay, means that you must then have the answer to what the problem is. And the role of a leader or an employer or indeed a friend isn't to become a psychologist or a doctor. It's to listen and to offer somebody an opportunity to feel heard. And that is all you need to do. You do not need to have the answer. Just asking people, are you okay, is often enough. That's a fantastic bit of advice. And I think if we all start doing that, the world's going to be a better place anyway. But... I would also add to that, and I speak from a bit of personal experience here, is it's understanding that you're going to get someone at their most vulnerable as mm, well. Exactly. And you have to be the trustee of that vulnerability. You have to be very careful about where you go with that, but you have to be aware. And I think one of the things I did when I was better and arrived back at work, I became a mental health first aider. And it was a tremendous course. You can do it with St. John's Ambulance. It's inexpensive. And it, what it did is it essentially gave me some tips on exactly what you've just described, which is how do you engage with somebody who is vulnerable? And that could apply even to a physical illness as it is a, a mental illness. And just understanding that you are the custodian of that individual and that actually often something that you say, if meant in the best possible way and isn't derogatory in any way, it is unlikely that that statement is going to take somebody to a worse place than what they already are. So by way of example, I was surprised that with regards to suicide, asking somebody if they feel suicidal isn't going to plant the thought into their minds and therefore make it more likely that they will act on that thought. And the mental health training helped me to understand that because I would have never felt confident enough to ask somebody if they were having those mm. thoughts. Mm. So it's interesting and I would advise any leader or indeed anyone who is interested in this area and being a more helpful colleague to consider taking that training in the same way you would do first aid training, quite frankly. Great advice. So let's go back again. You're diagnosed at mm -hmm. that time. Yes. As clinically depressed. Yes. 
What happens next? Gosh, my husband said to me, Nikki, I'm going to take over now. And I remember those words so clearly. I burst into tears when he said that because I was so used to being in control. And as a leader, you often feel, as your introduction alluded to, that you need to be a martyr almost, that it's up to you to keep it all going. And without realizing it, I had felt I had become the master of everything and felt that only I could find all the answers. And for him to say those words just allowed me to physically and mentally relax into self-care. And it was a beautiful time, actually. So I remember crying a lot. (laughs) I remember going to the doctor and the permission, again, was granted through time signed off. My work is very understanding and accommodating. And my objective for the next two months was to walk my son to and from school and to get back in touch with myself. And what that meant was a digital detox I stopped being on LinkedIn, I stopped being on Facebook, Instagram. I even went to the extent that I didn't really respond to people's telephone calls and text messages. People did know that I was ill. And it took a while actually to feel comfortable with that because again, I've been raised as a very polite person. I like to, if people telephone me or contact me, I like to get in touch. But I realized that I needed to, In this, again, I draw comparison to a physical illness. If you've had a serious operation, you'd probably be in hospital unable to communicate with people. So the same applied to me. And I did a lot of walking. I have a, on my LinkedIn page, I have a photograph of the cherry blossoms. And that was the first day I remember looking up. It was about one and a half months into my illness. And I looked up into the sky and it was starting to become spring-like. And the cherry blossoms were in full bloom. And I remember feeling for the first time that I was happy. And I hadn't felt happy in months. It was amazing. It really, I felt like I discovered myself and I realised I discovered my purpose again. My reason to get up and to... Your ikigai. My ikigai, exactly. My reason to be. Which I realised actually was, a lot of people used to say to me, Nikki, you give too much. You wear your heart on your sleeve. And I used to have a real issue with that because I felt that is who I am and you are asking me not to be who I am. And I've realized now that actually it is fine to be that person, but I need to be that person in a selfish way. So in a way that doesn't overgive, I need to know when to draw the line. And so I found this nice coexistence between what I realize is my purpose, which is to care and to look after people and indeed to do what I'm doing today, which is talking about the importance of, of health through my own experience, with actually recognizing that there are times where I have to say to my friends and my work colleagues, I cannot come out this evening. I need a time for myself where I can literally just sit in front of a television and watch what I call wallpaper television, whereby the images on the screen literally wallpaper over all the worries in your mind and you can just reset and recalibrate. So this whole skill of self-awareness mm. is a crucial tool in recovery in terms of moving forward. Absolutely. And I've started to do, as an individual, I studied psychology, so I've always been interested in the way the human brain works. But as a leader, 
I've always been fascinated in the connection between the way organizational dynamics really and the psychology and communication. And I've started to do some training sessions with my work colleagues around emotional intelligence, which many believe cannot be taught. Many believe that it is something that should be relegated to those who are more sociable or personable. But actually, unlike IQ, EQ can be taught and it can be learned. So I encourage people to make effort to upskill and learn about themselves and also in partnership with that to learn about how others engage with you and with their environments. And it's not to suggest that if you become more self-aware, not only of yourself and of others, that you are always agreeing with others. It's just that you're accepting their state of play. And that dual awareness building is super useful. Very good. So I've got this mental picture of you walking and it's a lovely spring day, cherry blossoms out. Yep. It looks great, smells great. Why on earth did you come back to business? Gosh, that's a good question. I've never been asked that before. (laughs) (laughs) I probably suffered from postnatal depression. And as I was recovering a year and a half after that, my father died in a tragic car accident. And then as I was recovering after that, I then started to get into this busy work mode, which then resulted in my clinical depression episode in 2017. But it was a series of events. And I remember when I had my son, Alex, I wanted to go back to work because I felt that it was the one thing that I was really good at. Whereas at the time I felt I was failing as a mother and I couldn't control nature. And work has always for me felt as though it was something where I could give back whilst feeling good about what I was doing. So. It never came into question, should I go back into work? Because I didn't blame work for where I had arrived. I'd realized that actually it was a number of things that brought me to this point. Now, my situation was unique to me. I think there are individuals out there that suffer from toxic work environments and who aren't surrounded by amazing colleagues or line managers. And I, in those situations, probably work can be the key reason for the ill health. And that applies if you're a leader. The thing with being a leader, and it's a cliche, but it's lonely at the top, often you need to put on a front that you are okay, that you don't mind when people say things about you or act in a certain way that you don't believe in. And you need to find the strength to recognize that you're not okay. And if you are in a leadership position, you often have the power to make the work environment a better place, be it through honest discussions with your board colleagues, or indeed often bringing external people in to help flush out what has become systemic rather than an issue with yourself, really. Okay, so you're now back at work. Yes. And as you mentioned a moment ago, you need to create, if not an armor, Mm -hmm. you need to have some tactics or strategies recognizing that you are vulnerable, you are human. Yes, it is lonely at the top, but somehow you're going to have to have 
some key, as I say, tactics around, strategies around you. And I know you've developed a number of these over the past year or so. Yep. Would you like to talk us through that? Sure. And these essentially are learnings that I observed looking back. It is worth noting when I came back into the business, the business was thriving. And I remember going into a meeting room saying, did you miss me? Thinking that everyone would say, of course very we miss you. I know, I know, it's very dangerous. <laughs> I should know better. And people said to me, do you know, he's been fine. And God bless them. They were trying to say to me, you know, you've built a sustainable business. What I heard was, we're all right without you, Nikki. But actually, with hindsight, I'm glad that they are okay and they do continue to be. So in terms of my journey, I discovered these eight steps towards finding my own purpose. And the reason I bring it back to purpose, or you could call it well-being, really, is because I feel that you need to know where you're going in order to keep going there. So the first is use the past as a point of reference. I, with hindsight, didn't really, at the time when I was getting ill, see the elements that were going wrong. And I also didn't see the elements that were going right. And had I been able to see the red thread of when I'm functioning optimally, I think I would have focused more so on those points. So I encourage you, to reflect on when you feel that actually you're doing something in a good way or when you're doing something that feels it brings me down and it really drains my energy. And I think that's so important. And recently somebody talked about journaling in the sense that you literally just write your thoughts in a notebook without pause, without contemplation, just what comes to mind. And I think that's a really good way in which to find the golden thread. You need to stop to start doing. And by that, I mean, I needed to stop for two months in order to recalibrate. And a lot of leaders feel I simply cannot remove myself for two months in order to get better. And my advice to you is you cannot afford not to remove yourself for enough time, as diagnosed by your doctor, in order to get better. And indeed, physically, your mind and your body needs time to get better in order to be able to begin again. Notice when you are in your flow, and this links to the first one around finding your golden thread. So there are those moments where you are just happy and time literally runs away with you. And it's often those times where you are in the most positive state of yourself. And I think if you can try to replicate more of those times, you will be able to nurture a healthier, better self. Find someone with whom to have safe conversations. Trusting somebody, to be honest with you, to tell you some hard truths is the best gift you could give yourself. You do not want to surround yourself with people who are scared to be honest with you. You need to find somebody who you feel, do you know what, I can be honest with you and you in turn can be honest with me. So that if you're not able to spot when you are spiraling out of control, that individual can actually perhaps highlight it to you and get you back on track. Surround yourself with stunning colleagues and friends. Uh, the word stunning colleagues or the phrase stunning colleagues I've stolen with pride from Netflix, who talks about the importance of being surrounded by wonderful people, both in the work and the home place, 
because then you want to be a better version of yourself. If you're surrounded with toxic, toxic people, it can bring you down. So if you find yourself that you are surrounded by people who you'd rather not be around, do something about it. You have the power to do that. Be curious, reach beyond your echo chamber. This essentially allows you to have some new insights and to spark creativity, enthusiasm, um, gives you a thirst for life again. So don't fall into your rut. Try and open your mind to new things. Be positively selfish, which I've talked a little bit about. When you feel that you are losing momentum, that you feel that you cannot give enough to your colleagues anymore, you feel you're losing energy, it's time that you actually decide, you know what, I need to have some me time and look after myself. And last but not least, invest in self-discovery. So a healthy dose of navel-gazing is always useful. We focus on developing business plans, business cycles, but we never, well, seldom develop personal plans. So have some time to do a SWOT analysis about yourself. You know, what is the threat? What is the weakness? But indeed, what is the strength or the opportunity? And I think if you do that, then you're more likely to nurture the best version of yourself, which ultimately will be to the positive benefits of those around you. So those are my eight steps. That's fantastic. And you've gleaned that, obviously, over the last year and a half or so. And they clearly work for you. They work well for you. And I'm interested to know whether the depression is always there at the back of your mind. Do you think that's something you clearly, obviously, you don't want to go back there. But no, there's not a fear of going back to that if you're armed? Well, no, I think it's always a fear. And I don't, I wish I could say that these eight steps were bulletproof armor. And I'm afraid they're they're not really. Depression is an illness which takes constant work. I'm on medication. I continue to do talking therapy. I exercise. There's mechanisms I've put in place to try and stop me from getting to that dark place where indeed I felt I had cotton wool in my brain. I remember describing it that way. But the statistics show that if you've had clinical depression and an episode, you're more likely to have another in your lifetime. So, and that's because the world happens to you. I can't control the world. And as long as you recognize that it it can happen, I think I feel less concerned because I now know that there are people around me who can help me. Unfortunately, when I had my first bout of depression, I felt very alone. And it is my hope that if I can help somebody to spot it before it happens and it goes too far down the line, that they aren't alone and that they have got somebody there to catch them before they fall, really such an inspiration that you are being very public about this and you're talking about it you're on mm-hmm. a number of events where you are talking about this yes. to the business community yes and can they get details via your linkedin page they and- can so my linkedin page nikki young has my contact details it also has a booklet which describes the eight steps that i have gone through i'm invited to talk at various events, be it I recently did one at a global finance team was meeting and they very much wanted to highlight the importance of health and well-being with an emphasis on mental health. So I was invited there. Recently I was at Disney talking to employees who expressed an interest in understanding what are the signs and what can we look out for 
so uh, very happy to share and spread the word as much as I can. Just wrapping this all up, Nikki, if I may, there's so many takeaways here, so I probably won't do it justice, but correct me if I'm wrong. Some of the takeaways I picked up, you started off talking about your icky guy, mm-hmm. rediscover your why. If someone encouraged friends to ask, how are you, three times. Yes. And be self-aware, be very vulnerable to that, be very honest with yourself. You talked also about a mental health course for people that can go mm-hmm. on in terms of being able to have the conversations, but understanding more about what you can do in the workplace. Yes. And that's valuable. You also talked about the whole concept of a digital detox yes. when you are in this place. And maybe that's a good thing to do anyway every now and again, or at least... I have to say, when you said that, I, w- I was reminded of a stat that I had seen last year in the Harvard Business Review, which showed that on average, CEOs work 62 and a half hours per week hmm. and nearly eight weekends out of 10. That's and shocking. It is shocking. It That's is shocking. shocking. And there's always on culture is a pandemic. It's terrible. So maybe that's where we start with the digital cleanse, if not a detox, certainly. And then you really generously shared the eight steps with us, which is using the past as a point of reference. And you talked about possibly journaling as Mm -hmm. as one of those tools where you can look back. Stop to start doing Mm -hmm. things. Notice when you're in your flow, you were talking about. Uh, Find someone to have safe conversations with. Surround yourself with stunning colleagues and friends and you reference Netflix as, mm-hmm. as where that came from. Be curious beyond your echo chamber. I love the be positively selfish. I think yes. that's the great one. Invest in self-discovery. So they're the eight yes. sort of markers as we're going. That's all we've got time for. Nikki, that has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so open with us. And I truly think that will have been of help to someone listening. I hope so. Um, Yeah, I think we all hope so, because it, as you say, it's a very lonely and very frightening place to be when we're in that depressed state. And well done for coming through it and being so proactive in taking this forward. As we said, if you want to know more about Nikki's work, uh, especially around the whole subject of depression and, and the mental health, please visit her LinkedIn page. A huge thank you to Nikki, obviously. As always, we invite our listeners to share the podcast with their peers and families. This podcast production has been brought to you by Vistage, the world's leading business performance and leadership advancement organisation. And please do tweet us at Vistage UK with your questions and feedback and visit vistage.co.uk for more information. Until next time, I've been Matthew Griffiths. Thank you for listening. Thank you.